The following program is brought to you by Caltech. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 2011 Caltech Space Challenge. This is our third lecture in our lecture series sponsored by Lockheed Martin. And this afternoon, we have the privilege to welcome Dr. John Baker, who is the manager of the Human and Robotic Mission Systems Office at JPL. This afternoon, he'll be presenting on the system building blocks and design drivers for our mission. Dr. John Baker. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you today. Um, when we were working with John and Prakar, we wanted to make sure to set you up to help you have the best chance possible of coming up with a concept and perhaps even a mission architecture in the one week. So the one piece that we saw was missing um, was the system design, which happens to be my area of expertise. Uh, just a little bit of background. I've been working for JPL for 25 years. I started off uh, designing instruments and then designing payloads that flew on the space shuttle and did a number of very large space shuttle payloads uh, over the last 10 years. And I've spent the last um, seven years working in human exploration in a variety of different capacities. And right now, I'm actually, I've been doing both uh, studies for sending people to NEOs as well as working on sending people to Mars. So, um, so let's see. So that's a little bit about me. So a little bit about uh, human spaceflight. Um, I realized as I was creating this that you probably know this, but I thought I would just kind of refresh your memory. It's only been 50 years in the history of humanity that we've actually been able to put people into orbit. Um, and it's only been, I think, uh, 40 years since we put people on the moon. So uh, we saw a very rapid development of technology and capabilities to move people out. And uh, both starting with Yuri Gagarin in the far left corner and the X-15 program, and then Alan Shepard and finally uh, Buzz Aldrin and, and Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin uh, on the moon in 1969. So, and then we did a a series of evolutions from Skylab and, and Mir and uh, the space shuttle program, which was used for both scientific research as well as the construction of the International Space Station. And then now there's a third player on the, on the court, which is the Chinese, who now have human spaceflight capability. Uh, so there are now three major players in this domain. So now I, I did a little bit of research um, there are actually more than 50 countries in the world. I should have quoted the source of this. This is from the office of uh, OECD.org, Office of Economic and Something Development. And uh, I had no idea that out of 192 com countries, 50 of them are already engaged in some way in spaceflight. So that tells me that there's a lot of interest um, and there's a growing interest in terms of spaceflight. And it also tells me that anything that we end up doing next um, in terms of a, a space program will, much like the International Space Station, probably be very international in nature. So I think, it's, I think it's just great that you all are here from all over the world to participate in these studies. And I think it's actually a reflection of the times to come. So um, I'll also add that uh, a lot of the current and previous programs continue today. Uh, I think we haven't really talked a lot about it, but they continue to 
uh, produce innovations, both technological as well as information that allows us to uh, understand more about our planet or contribute to the quality of our daily lives in a meaningful way. Um, going all the way back to the very beginning of the space program. And that's what I think is in it for all of us by working in space exploration. Is that we can actually address not only the challenges of today, but challenges in the future as well. Largely in the domain of sustainability and learning how to use our resources more efficiently and being more responsible in the environment. So, you want to go to an asteroid. So I'm sure you heard from Don and Paul, and both of them are really the experts. Uh, but I looked at it from a different perspective. I looked at it from what does it mean to actually send people to an asteroid versus what we've done before. So on the left is Harrison Smith, um, Caltech graduate, actually, and uh, from Apollo 17. And we see, just as evidence, the large amount of dust and dirt on his suit. And that dust and dirt actually tended to stick to the suit, and they couldn't help but take it in and out of the lunar um, lander. <clears throat> so working on the moon was actually a very dirty environment. So the dust, it was just, and they got dust and dirt into everything. They had problems with the seals and trying to get their, their suits on and off. Um, and we also do a lot of work now on the space station. This is an assembly picture. Tamara Jernigan from... I think a few years ago, I don't remember which flight or expedition this was, uh, of moving a Russian component into position uh, during assembly. So, but guess what? Going to an asteroid isn't like either of these things. Okay, next. Turns out going to an asteroid is not going to be like anything like what we've done before. And we're going to be visiting an early remnant from the formation of our solar system, and something that's probably a combination of both of these things, working on the moon as well as working uh, in a microgravity environment. Um, so really, you're going to be working in an atmosphere, in a, an environment that has dust that can, as soon as you interact with it, can probably be suspended for some time. Uh, so that actually has a number of implications, which we're still lurking, looking at in terms of what, how we're going to deal with it. Um, you're dealing with an object which is not necessarily very cooperative and probably won't be cooperating with you very well. So you're going to have to deal with uh, how you rendezvous with it, what in, how do you mitigate or deal with hazardous environments in that particular object, sharp edges, things that are rough, things that, you could, that might damage your suit. And, of course... Um, Again, something that has no handrails or anything like that. So I know I saw at least one of the teams looking at how they're going to deal with anchoring on the objects, and that's a really good thing. That turns out to be a really critical uh, part of the story. So the surface environment, uh, at least in our conclusion, is going to drive the suit designs and all the tools and equipment, as well as actually how you interact with the surface. Again, once you touch something, you're now going to be in an environment that's completely clouded, um, so you got to make sure that as that suspended dust is hanging around you that the suit joints won't lock up on you and you don't get stuck somehow. Or if it's not the suit, it's whatever equipment you have can actually function properly. Uh, tools, will, we will need things to anchor crew members working at the surface. And then again, edges and protrusions uh, will need to, will probably require us to do special guards and things to make sure that the, we don't end up damaging a suit. The surface charge environment is another consideration. So much like you see Harrison Smith on the left, 
the dust actually literally would come up and stick to the suit, and that's the difference in the charge environment. And so um, we'll need to figure out how to deal with that. Maybe there are special materials that don't allow for that, or we find some way of, of uh, some other way of dealing with it. <laughs> I don't have the answer off the top of my head. Um, data that requires, so we've done numerous studies, by the way, and there's fairly good consensus on this. I, I would say we might be leaving something off, but what do you need to know before you go there, and, and why do you think uh, you need to uh, perhaps even send a robotic precursor? One is you don't really know the basic object structure. Uh, I'm sure Don told you you can speculate on what that might be based on the rotation rate, but you don't actually know until you go. Um, object size, density, and rotation rate. A lot of these things are inferred from spectral observations uh, for the objects that we have been able to look at. These are going to be very important for doing mission planning. Um, the presence of various debris around that particular objects. There's, uh, Don pointed out when we were doing these studies earlier that there can be, and it's very difficult to predict, actual pieces of smaller pieces of asteroid that may be in, a, in an orbit around the, your asteroid of interest. Surface structure, uh, surface roughness, the charge on the surface, particle sizes, morphology, and chemistry. These are all things that are going to be important to know as well as you try to anchor your devices or interact with the surface in some capacity, or even determining the work site where you want to send the crew members to uh, go and grab samples. Okay, so um, I'm sure many of you, if you haven't, you will be uh, doing various mission design. I decided to kind of take you to the next step. This is uh, the non-traditional spacecraft design considerations, the things that you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily find in the uh, space handbooks. Um, what you're dealing with, as you're going to find out, is a very large amount of mass that you have to move out of Earth orbit to your object and then bring it back. Um, that's going to take uh, it's going to take a fair amount of propulsion. Um, power you're going to need lots of it. Turns out keeping the crew alive and happy and uh, and uh, comfortable for the entire duration actually takes quite a bit of power. Um, communications you're going to have to deal with when you're on the opposite side of the solar system from the Earth. You're going to uh, you're going to have to deal with light time delays. And so how do you communicate? How do you operate with the Earth? And by the way, I'm not expecting that, I don't think we included all of these things. This is more for background information as you go through your studies. Uh, you don't have to find solutions to all of these things in your, in your team studies, okay? So um, orbital debris, uh, this is another consideration that we, we have to deal with while assembling things in orbit, as well as just the standard orbital decay. So you put up one piece, and where is it going to be when you launch the next piece? And, and how do you make sure that it's actually still functioning by the time you get the next pieces, all of the pieces together, to be able to then leave Earth orbit and go to your target? Uh, life support and thermal control, that probably is something you're going to want to look at. Uh, assured crew return, also known as aborts. Um, I actually led the, um, the ascent and abort activity for the Constellation program, and aborts took about 80% of my time, which is working on how do you keep the crew safe throughout the entire mission and bring them back uh, and make sure that they can, if something goes wrong, you can bring them back uh, uh, alive. So um, finally, Earth return velocity. This is not another thing you're going to see, uh, but we, we've seen in a number of scenarios where 
just because you can get out to an object, now you've got to be able to come home and the heat shield has to be able to handle the, the return velocity. And we typically use numbers on the order of 12 kilometers a second as a maximum entry velocity speed. Um, let's see, what else do I have? Okay, so what you're going to need to work out, I, I, I went into one of the rooms. This is great. You guys are already working on which target are you going to go to, what's your destination. You should be generating trajectory options and not just the, a single trajectory, but looking at both the minimum delta V and the minimum trip time and finding some kind of happy solution between those two. And I'll say what I mean by that in a minute. Uh, you're going to be wanting, you're going to want to trade the mission duration and performance as you try to figure out how big this vehicle is. Um, and then you're also going to want to trade the duration with the crew size and, of course, how much volume the crew has to actually operate inside of. So these are all, these are all very uh, germane factors when we size systems uh, for NASA. Initial vehicle dry, so you're going to want to, once you figure out, oh, you have a notion about what these things are, you're going to want to try to add everything up in terms of dry mass, and there's a chart that I'm going to get to in a little bit. You may have seen it on the blog, um, but uh, you're going to want to then estimate that vehicle dry mass and then use your trajectory to um, then fill, fill it with fuel and, and then calculate the wet mass. Uh, what, orient, you know, what configuration are you going to put all these different elements in? Uh, that's going to be important. That'll define your operation scenario. Uh, and then lastly, the mission profile. How are you going to launch and assemble these things in, in low Earth orbit? <clears throat> so these are some of the elements that we use uh, for the various architecture options that we study within NASA. Um, the space launch system on the left or any heavy lift launch vehicle. I know in your handbook you have a whole number of launch vehicle options. Um, and, you know, of course, the smallest launch vehicle tends to be the more affordable launch vehicle, but you got to still get enough things into orbit in order to transport the crew to the object that you want to go to and back. Uh, the multi-purpose crew vehicle, uh, also known as Orion. Um, so so you, that's there for you to use. The cryogenic propulsion stage, this is just a LOX hydrogen stage, you can, I'm sure you have the ISP, um, you can find the ISP readily online and calculate what your propulsion needs need to be. Um, I discourage solar electric propulsion in this talk because we are still working on how to use SEP uh, effectively uh, for transporting humans. Right now it's clearly beneficial in sending cargo because the cargo doesn't have uh, time limits. We can take as long as we need to get to wherever we're going. Um, but uh, for transporting humans, uh, we are still trying to figure out how to do that. So what does the right power level need to be? Um, can we use hybrid combinations of SEP and cryo um, in order to find the, the more optimal mass uh, and trip durations? So, it's, so the jury is still out and it's actually quite complicated. So I think I would discourage you from, from looking at that. Uh, we also have kick stages in our inventory for moving stuff out of low Earth orbit. Um, we have a multi-mission exploration vehicle, which is sort of a pod for 
instead of going out in a suit, you could go out with this vehicle and explore the surface. It's an interesting option instead of just doing an EVA. But it, as you'll see in your trades, it also adds mass um, to, your, to your mission. Uh, deep space habitat, probably essential for any mission. And then various supporting areas like robotics and EVA modules for interacting with the service and doing any kind of sample uh, acquisition or manipulation. And then, of course, science instrumentation for actually generating, doing not just technology demonstrations, but actually uh, learning something about the environment that you're in. And then I would also encourage you, by the way, if you think of something that you see that's missing or want to do, I highly encourage you to create your own. So part of the value we see is that here we have a bunch of new people to this particular problem, and we're very much interested in what you come up with. So rules of thumb. Um, these are my rules of thumb. You can make up your own if you want, but these are my suggestions. Um, first of all, we, you know, we... Uh, assume the HLLV can provide anywhere from 50 to 130 metric tons in LEO. If you want to use a smaller launch vehicle, you can, but if you use the heavy lift, that's, those are the kinds of numbers to use. Uh, 130 is the high end, 50 is about what um, SpaceX provides in the Falcon 9 Heavy. Um, assume a crew vehicle can transport at least four people to low Earth orbit and, um, and back and um, Number of launches to LEO is a good cost indicator. This is kind of what we use for looking at the overall cost and complexity of the mission is how many launches does it take to put something into LEO. So that's a little bit why we favor use of the heavy lift over lots of expendable uh, launches. But uh, again, interested in your thoughts there. Uh, reliability is driven by duration and complexity. So. So you're, you're, whenever you're designing a mission, you're always fighting all of these different, you're dealing with all of these different uh, aspects. The shorter, the, so ideally you'd want a very short mission with only a couple of crew, but I think you'll probably find that those, are, those targets are far and few, if, if perhaps even non-existent. So, um, so again, reliability is driven by duration and complexity. Obviously more reliability is better, um, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't, uh, uh, design the mission to work. Longer duration flights uh, in, our, in NASA's experience also tend to require more crew, which then ends up driving more consumables. And uh, in our experience, it also, we also find that it also requires more crew volume. So now as you go on longer duration flights, you're having to accommodate, provide either more storage or um, <coughs> not only more storage and more consumables, but also more volume for them to actually habitate. So, you know, again, this is a scenario where shorter is better. One thing I, I avoided talking about was the, both the radiation, because I know there's a talk tomorrow on that, I think, or tomorrow or Wednesday, right? And also the zero-G issues. So there are, there are biological things to deal with in those two domains, but I'm mostly just talking about the systems today. All right, so this is the kind of thing that we'd like to see you do because this will help organize your thinking. This is affectionately known as the BAT chart. And because when we used to do these things from the Earth and, and we would have a moon up on top, 
you would see, you know, you'd launch from the Earth and then there would be people hanging from the top on the moon. But it's sort of evolved into a variety of different uh, formats. But it's still very useful for helping you to organize your thinking about how many launches you're going to take, which elements go up at which time. In this case, I don't really call that out. Um, how many elements you're going to use are involved in your stack configuration, what you're going to do at the asteroid when you get there, and then your configuration as you come home. So this will help clarify your thinking. I think I, we put a PowerPoint of this on the blog as well, so you can, this is actually available to you to tailor to, and again to help communicate your thinking about your, your mission architecture. So this is the kind of process we go through. Uh, my colleague, Brett Drake, is going to show you a different process that we use. But this is one I think that I've tailored more to your needs, which is you want to generate your trajectory options. Then you want to size your propulsion and consumables. Um, and then you, then you want to look at which elements you're going to use. And, and by the way, you're going to have to iterate on this a few times because uh, you can start here and then do there, but you eventually got to close the loop a couple of times to find the right solution. Um, so you're, then you're going to want to look at what elements you're using and size those in terms of the volume uh, and then update the mass accordingly uh, and then figure out how you're going to put it all together in low Earth orbit and then go to the object and come back. And then really I use the, the metric of success as the number of launches. How many launches does it take? Because more launches means Again, more complexity, more elements, um, and trying to keep all of these things working while you're assembling them in low Earth orbit. And so you'll go around. So this, I, I put this table in here. I got permission to share this with you. And I also included some sizing factors at the bottom. Uh, this is our current uh, sort of element breakdown in terms of mass, volume, and the dimensions. If you need to size something, you can, you know, just literally change the dimensions and then add in the corresponding amount of mass and volume. Um, again, I would encourage not using the SEP systems for this study. It's just going to take you a long time. Uh, uh, let's see. On the left is the crew transfer vehicle. Call it MPCV, Orion, or Boeing, CST, or Dragon, or whatever you decide to use. This is the, the reference that we use right now. Um, if you want to use a pod-like exploration vehicle, like the MMSEV, those are the specs there. Um, or if you decide not to use that and you just use EVA suit, you know, you're gonna, there's going to be some increase in risk. And it would be interesting to hear your discussion about that. Deep Space Hab, uh, and then, of course, Kickstage and Cryo. Um, the Kickstage, I'll actually have to look and see if... If anybody ends up using that, I'll have to go and look up what the technology is on that. I don't recall off the top of my head. So um, at the bottom, uh, we use anywhere from three to five kilograms per crew day for consumables. So three kilograms is sort of on the low end and, and can work for long duration flights. Five kilograms is sort of on the short end. But that's water, oxygen, food. Um, the actual consumption rate is higher than that, so there's already there's already recycling built into that for both the water and the oxygen. Um, let's see. Two, we also assume about 220 kilograms per crew member for the mission. So that's the weight of the person. That's an average weight, as well as their equipment and their clothing and you know their iPad or whatever else they want to take along with them. Um, and then 
We also typically assume about 100 kilograms of return sample mass. This is always debated in every study we do. It's almost, a, it's, it gets kind of funny after a while. But, you know, if you want to bring back less, be interested to hear why. If, you know, if your tipping point of your design ends up being, you know, sample mass, and you should go with less sample mass to, of course, get down, get down to something that works for you. And then the more interesting one is we actually, I pulled this off of a table. Uh, number four there is the actual crew volume sizing. Um, there are, you can, if you do really short missions below 100 day, the, the slope actually goes down really sharp. But uh, for 100 days and above, you can just take those two points and draw a straight line and keep going out uh, to estimate how much crew volume. And by the way, you can aggregate the volume in all of the different elements. So the, the, the CTV, the MMSEV, the deep space hab, however you want to create volume. And so with that, I think uh, we're headed off to the Athenaeum. Good luck on your studies. I uh, look forward to hearing about them. And uh, any questions? This program is brought to you by Caltech. Visit us at caltech.edu.